Hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the wild and untamed lands known as Internet Land, and welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. Well, I know we've been gone on uh, off the air for a little bit of time. Uh, I'm sure as a lot of you know from listening to the podcast, I got married in November, uh, did a big old honeymoon, Christmas, and uh, we're getting into the new year. Of course, finding skippers to interview can always be a challenge, so I'd just like to remind you that if you are a Jungle Cruise skipper, ex-Jungle Cruise skipper, uh, I guess former Jungle Cruise skipper, because we're never really ex-skippers, are we? Uh, or you know someone who is, we are always looking for people to interview for the show. Our email address is junglecruisecrews at gmail.com. Today's interview was a particular pleasure for me. I got to sit down with um, the mayor of West Hollywood, John Duran, who was a uh, skipper during 1978 to 1984. We had a phenomenal discussion, and I genuinely uh, enjoyed sitting down with him and listening to his experiences at the park and some of the cultural touchstones that the park has become. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I do. Uh, this is a particularly special episode for me. Uh, other than that, our next episodes, um, it's still kind of nebulous, but we should have another one up within the next two weeks. I uh, hope you guys are continuing to enjoy, that you've had a great new year. Uh, looking forward to uh, more episodes and more skippertainment as the year goes on. All right, everyone, enjoy the episode and kungaloosh. Yeah, no, we've been um, just over two years. Uh, like I said, we've had 60-some-plus episodes, and the concept, I, I'm going to roll this in because we actually took a break because I uh, got married in November. Congratulations. Uh, fantastic. Did a honeymoon on a shabby little place called the Big Island of Hawaii for nice. 15, 16 days, wow. and uh, because of that, I took, skippers are a very flighty bunch, <laughs> and I had three months where I wasn't hunting down interviews, so this is partially my mea culpa to the people who... Uh, I've been listening to the show why we haven't had updates for for a little bit, and they know. But um, but yeah, so no, we are we're now in uh, our third year of doing this, and it's amazing how um, people connect with the Jungle Skipper, with the Disneyland experience in general. So I'll do the intros uh, today. We're sitting down with uh, is it Council Member. Yeah, Mayor John Duran. You, you actually refer to an elected official by the highest office that he or she attained. So, oh, okay. Like Bill Clinton, even though he's not currently the president, you still call him so I wasn't Mr. Sure president. About that. And I wasn't sure about this whole, you know, the whole mayor pro tempura thing. And I, right, think, yeah. I think everyone's pro tempura. Who, does, who doesn't like fried food? That's very true. Uh, so, Mayor John Duran. Um, so, yeah, so uh, let's just do the, the quick pedigree. You told me you were a Disneyland cast member from 74? Uh, 78 to 78 84. Uh, I first got elected as a casual. I'm elected. Look at me. I'm already in election mode. I first got <laughs> hired as a casual seasonal on Main Street. I worked in the Emporium for one year, mm-hmm. and then I transferred to the Jungle Cruise in 1979. So I was 
in the park, 78 to 84, Main Street for a year, and then Adventureland, Frontierland. Now, I know, uh, you know, with politics, you never talk about age, but let's see, you would have been, were you in college at that time? I was, was in it? college. I was in college. So yeah. you came, and what, what was the, I mean, at that time, it was a very different world from, you know, what we see today with people coming into Disneyland, where That's true. Uh, every, for every uh, job, they have 70 applications. Right. Uh, when I came on in 2000, for every uh, application, they had three jobs. Wow! So now, with the the economy the way it is, it's what was it? Uh, was it when you? What was the process when you got? <laughs> this you may find this funny or not funny. I was uh, I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. This is actually my my home, mm-hmm. and I was having feelings that I was possibly gay at the time when I was in high school, and so I had tried everything from reparative therapy to praying the gay away, and I needed a way out of what I thought was going to lead to a, a life or uh, you know short lived with eternal damnation on the other side. So I decided to find the one place on earth that I thought would have the most wholesome, clean cut, Absolutely. all American. American kids where I could save my soul, <laughs> and and I applied at, to work at Disneyland, not realizing I had just thrown myself into the hotbed of homosexuality in Orange County because there were so many LGBT employees at Disneyland, and within three months of me getting hired, I was dating Peter Pan. That's a true story. I was <laughs> dating Peter Pan. So Disneyland <laughs> saved my soul, just not the way that I thought it would. Peter Pan's, for some reason, there's always... There's, there, that person, the, the character of that, always seems to be a hotbed of controversy. Uh, the last Peter Pan group I know were identical triplets, who <laughs> were all gymnasts and who uh, had the most busy social calendars you can imagine. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's why I got so, to Disneyland. Yeah, where were you, seventy-eight. Where were you going to school? I was uh, uh, going to Cal State Long Beach, mm-hmm. and I was uh, in my freshman year. I graduated from a Catholic high school, St. Paul High School, here in the Whittier Santa Fe Springs area. Started at Cal State Long Beach, and Disneyland was my first real job. Yeah. And I, I imagine in those days, if you're living out there, it uh, it isn't like it is today with the the freeway. Uh, you know, now if you if you don't live close, you almost can't work there because of the the true. commute times. It was and gas. very different. I, my first uh, little apartment there, I ended up living with two women who also worked at the park: Kelly Maloney and Judith Men, and they were New Orleans uh, Bear Country uh, women and. We, we were playing Three's Company before there was a Three's Company. <laughs> Two women and, and myself, although they often said I wasn't Jack, I was more the Chrissy uh, of the threesome. Yeah. So was it, um, I, I would think stores wouldn't be as much of a shock. as I think attractions is a much more, at least, you know, when I came on 2000 and all right. that. Uh, stores seemed to be a little more conservative of the groups, but, I mean, d- did you have that quick exposure to attractions and to... All those other people. I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I was uh, working on mainstream the Emporium, and by the way, the Emporium people were really great. I loved it, but I could hear the bang bang of the, the revolver, the, guns, yeah. uh, the hippo pond right behind the Emporium, and I would hear it all day and all night, along with the wailing of the dancing headhunters. I could hear it just on the other side. Was, was, was it like a, an Edgar Allan Poe was it, calling to it you? It was a clarion call. It was yes. a call. The jungle was calling to me. And so <laughs> I, uh, I became very intent that I wanted to transfer to the Jungle Cruise. And they had said, well, because I did really well on Main Street, well, you, how about tomorrow and how about Fantasyland? I said, I want to go to the Jungle Cruise yep. or, or nowhere. So, And it's funny that I think that we, we've talked about, and there are certain topics that get, recycled over and over because there are some common experiences jungle is i think one of two attractions in the park that people request with like an iron fist that i want to work here right uh i'll let you guess what, what do you think the other one is that 
Space Mountain? Haunted Mansion, Haunted Mansion. Oh, it's the outfit. Yeah, Haunted (laughs) Mansion. I think that there's, and I think, you know, obviously that kind of uh, ethos is is more today maybe than it was then. Right, right. So about a year in, you know, you're you're making your play to, to head over there. And have you already kind of become a social butterfly within the park? No, I, I, I get no, the sense no. of you, that I you was, have a very strong personality. I did, but I have to say, like a lot of young people, my personality was really shaped mm-hmm. by my days at Disneyland. I mean, I think a lot of who I am today, yeah. both the good and the bad that I experienced at Disneyland, shaped me into becoming what I would become later in life. One of the one really odd thing that happened at the same time I transferred, there was a time when you were a ride operator, you could work on any attraction on the west side. Right. right. It was Nobcalf, New Orleans, Bear Country, Adventureland, mm-hmm. Frontierland, and people rotated. But the year that I went over, they actually ended up uh, cutting the two territories into separate areas. And was that the 951 split? Yes, that's right. And, and and it actually had a very detrimental effect on the people that were there because, you know, when you get to rotate and have different challenges, I think yeah. it keeps the brain working better. If you were a ride operator in Adventureland, Frontierland at that time, if you were male, you were on the Jungle Cruise. There yeah. were no women allowed on the Jungle Cruise. And if you were female, you were on Tiki Room or the shooting galleries. And that's as far as you went. The men, every now and then, we get on the Mark Twain or Columbia. And it was limited because that was obviously quite a bit before Indy. But I'm, I'm trying to think. That's big, right. There was no Thunder, Indiana Thunder Jones. was... Not there. They opened up yeah. during that period of time. Yeah, it was 82, I think. Yeah, and with Big Thunder opened 82. It actually provided some relief to all of us to have another thing. Sure. But what ended up happening is people became very embittered by doing the same job over over and over over again. Jungle wasn't what it is, I think, today from Mm -hmm. people that I've talked to that work there, where it's actually kind of a a great thing to do. People audition for Mm -hmm. it. They have women and men. A lot of passion. Yes. Back then, it was almost like a fraternity gone bad. Mm -hmm. It was a fraternity gone bad because it was only men. It was an all-male environment. And the guys that were there, we felt we were stuck. We were stuck and we didn't get the variety uh, of different attractions. Now, at that point was, I know that Main Street has bounced back and forth between Tomorrowland Management and uh, Adventure Frontier. Was it Where was it at at that point? It was just Adventure Frontier Management back then. Okay, so the, at least Main Street, you had vehicles and steam trains was right. part of the, the loop of things in no. Lincoln. We were stuck. And so yeah. it's kind of interesting because I think the people that sort of developed in that area became like the bad sorority of women and the bad fraternity of men because we were we were stuck so, in yeah, our jobs. So you're kind of stewing in your own juices. And stewing. And so we went to the director back then. His name was Glenn Hicks. I don't even know if he's still alive. I remember the name Glenn Hicks. And we a lot of us were business students, including myself. And mm-hmm. so we presented charts and diagrams showing that you, when you put human beings in the same rote positions <laughs> and have them do it over and over again, it's only a matter of time before morale will suffer, productivity will fall, mm-hmm. and, and they didn't want to hear it. They said, thank you very much. This Go back to it. For... So unfortunately, there was a, a real morale issue that developed in Adventureland, Frontierland back yeah, then. You know, and I know that coming out of the time with Walt's, Walt's passing in, you know, the, in 65, um, there was a lot of military that got hired into management jobs. And from what I understand from talking to people who worked in the 70s, that that military mindset really was the top-down way that they operated, where they didn't want the the feedback from the the people right. underneath because they were seen as very replaceable, and it was very much right. a, a factory of people coming through. It was, 
And, and that resulted in some really bad, I think, human resource management issues. I remember at the time I had a couple of friends. I don't know if I can name them now. I don't know how they'd feel about it. Well, I, I will. Diana Stark and Karen Ackley, who were women in management at Disneyland back in this period of time. And, and one of them was told, you know, you're in the wrong political party. Unless you become a Republican, you are going nowhere. And this park. And they were like two of the only women in management, period. Yeah. So it was very rare. I don't know what the situation is like today, but back then there were no people of color in positions of management. There yeah. were no, no women in management. The diversity on the company right. is... Well, and, you know, we, we talked about this. Um, the last full episodes that we had were, um, were with um, Sue, with Sue B. and Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking a little bit about how it's, it's funny that this perception of the Disney company as... You know, LGBT friendly or diverse company. Um, everyone attributes it to the Walt's time, but it really wasn't. It was the social pressures coming after the strike in the 70s. Right. And you had people who were so resentful about that from the unions. Right. You know, you had, um, I think, some changes in the demographics that were happening. Um, but it really was not a friendly community. I mean, uh, we I had a, about- a, a boyfriend that I was dating at the time. He was a casual seasonal on the Jungle Cruise. He was told the reason he was not made permanent was because he was a homosexual. Yeah. Flat out. There was no even well, hidden there agenda. There was no ambiguity there. There was none. It yeah. just, we're not going to make you a permanent employee because you're gay. Well, and that was, that was management from, uh, Sue was saying that, you know, she had a couple closeted friends who were in management right. who didn't want to breathe a word of anything yeah. or be seen socially with people because right. even the rumor of it would, would put people into a tailspin. Did you see that changing at all in your six years when you were at the resort? Or no, I, I left, kind of I left still? in 84 when the strike happened. The strike happened in 1984. Yeah. I was out on the Line. And, and it was primarily around health benefits. It was the two different types of health benefits that would be offered to A employees versus C employees sure. that caused the strike. And, you know, any future hires would not have the same level of benefits. But underlying all that was a lot of angst around the limited opportunities for women, the limited opportunities for people of color, the out and out homophobia yeah. that people were experiencing and some racism as well. And, and so out of all that angst, the strike of 84 happened, in my opinion. I, I left in 84. I, I'd had it, you know, my pixie dust had sort of worn off. I went in, you know, full of pixie dust, and I was actually a university leader. I would help orientate new employees. I was a company guy. And then when I saw what they did to my boyfriend and some of the other gay people, I became very embittered. And, and it was really amazing. At that period of time, when Big Thunder opened, there were suddenly like 15 gay guys who all came out of the closet yeah. at the same time uh, in Adventureland, Frontierland. We all found one another, this yeah. new camaraderie. But I think that, that those days of what I experienced there would go on to shape me because I went to law school shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. not knowing that I was going to become one of Southern California's premier gay rights attorneys. Sure. But because of what I had experienced at Disneyland uh, sure. during that time, it helped create me to who I became and eventually become the mayor of West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It all sort of sprung out of that both finding family at Disneyland and at the same time feeling discrimination sure. at Disneyland. So you feel, I mean, that not only was it formative for you in the way that it is for a lot of people, which is, you know, you get to experience a corporation atmosphere, you get to have more structure, you get to work for a union. There's all those logistical things, right. but it was also a chance for you to kind of 
have the, the seeds of that social awareness start It was. Pri- I mean, prior to that, it's kind of a funny note. I tell people this. When I first started working at Disneyland, I was a registered Republican. Mm-hmm. I was a Republican. I'm sort of having this coming out experience while I'm there, and the religious right takes over the Republican Party in 1980 with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. And I thought, this is not my party. And I went over to the other party, and at the same time, that was happening all over the country. There was this new gay rights revolution that was in its early days. I had no idea that I was going to get a lot of my early formative experiences out of my time at Disneyland. Now, I look back with great fondness about my time at Disneyland, you know, and I think a lot of us, even though there were times and it was really felt really horrible, more the good times yeah. and the friends that I made and the friends I still stay in touch with today far outweigh uh, the bad experiences. Well, and I wouldn't even say, you know, when we say bad, I mean, it's, I understand, I guess let me rephrase the way I was going to go with that. Um, it was a microcosm of what was happening culturally in the country as yes. well. And I think one of the things that's interesting is, is that your media... Um, things that come out, whether it be Disney or television or movies or music, is very much more liberal than you'll see as a country in general when you kind of look at the whole of, you know, middle of the road flyover country or wherever it is. Um, so Disney was getting guests coming from, you know, Wyoming or wherever it is that they might not have had the exposure to the lifestyles that may have been a stronger, you know, religious base, whatever it was. Right. So I'm sure that the company at that time was between a rock and a hard place. You had people who were probably very sympathetic, but there was that company, you know, line that they were trying to draw. And, and the social awareness just, I'm sure, wasn't there, you know, as, as, a, as a nation. Right. And there, there was a private party that was held once a year. And I want to remember the name. It was like the bartenders of Southern California or the bar owners, which was actually the gay communities night. And I remember back then people would fight to not be forced to work the night when the gay community was coming yeah. into Disneyland. It's about the same time that Andrew Exler took his dance partner out into the Tomorrowland Terrace and did the first same-sex dancing, and they were asked to be removed yeah. from the park. Now, what was the, the tone within a, a group like the Jungle Cruise, which was very much a fraternity atmosphere? Right. Did you find that when you got to the base level of the, the ROs and the people who were working that there was... A much there was acceptance on that level. Was there not? I mean, what was the the tone of your coworkers about the, that type of subject? It was mixed. I mean, there there were some guys on the Jungle Cruise that you know I was best man in the wedding and etc. Who just stopped talking to me when I came out of the mm-hmm. closet. But for the most part, you know, most of the people that knew and loved me and had worked with me, it was a non it was a non issue, mm-hmm. and we all just kind of moved forward. Yeah. You know, a lot of those guys that wouldn't talk to me during that period of time were back in communication again because the reality is the world has changed. Oh, absolutely, the world has changed from 1978-79. I mean, you have to remember, I was working at Disneyland the night Harvey Milk got assassinated mm-hmm. in 1979, yeah. right? So I was there as the whole movement was just getting started before there was AIDS, before there was gay marriage. Before there was any of these issues, I was coming out at at Disneyland. But I I think the experiences I had, because there was this complete clash. I had Disneyland so high on a pedestal. In my mind, when I got there, Disneyland could commit no wrong. It was like the perfect opportunity. I planned to spend my lifetime working Mm -hmm. there. And then when reality hit, which was that there were human beings involved, you know, I think like any young person without adolescent thinking about how the world should work, Mm -hmm. there was a a fall from grace in my experience. Now, looking back, 
reflecting as a 50-something-year-old man, I realized that it was just the nature of the whole country moving forward right. on this issue. Do you feel that with the Eisner era and with Disney's reemergence in the media side and with the, the resorts getting to be bigger, Disneyland Paris opening, that because the Petri dish of, of that acceptance that was starting to come out of them, you know, not having as many issues. I mean, do you think that that helped advance the agenda or put it into a visibility? Because I mean, I think that was a time when, when the resorts were getting known for being a very friendly place. I mean, do you think that it helped advance the, the public knowledge and the awareness of what was happening? I do think, actually, Eisner helped bridge the disconnect between the people at the studio and WED and the people at the park. Sure. You know, we had two people in two different parts of Southern California, L.A. County and Orange County. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people that were working around the studio side yeah. were just part of the greater Los Angeles scene where being gay was not that controversial. Then we had Disneyland in the middle of Anaheim, yeah. you know, 25 miles south, but maybe 20 years behind at the same time, yeah. you know, and the culture conflict that was happening. And Eisner helped sort of bridge that when I think people at the park saw Eisner being surrounded by all these out gay people that yeah. were very involved at WED, whatever it's called now, and, and the studios, and that it became less controversial. Yeah. And then they came out with The Little Mermaid, and it was all down. <laughs> then, then, then musical theater in Disney movies was, you know, merged yeah. irrevocably. So yeah, well, that's Steve, what it's inevitable. Steven it? Schwartz and Menken and yeah. Alan Menken. And and I mean, a, giant, a giant snowball rolling down the hill as soon as you put those movies out. <laughs> get some catchy tunes in there, and it helps promote things. So, um... As far as your time that you were there, now you were uh, you were out right up. Did you did you train? Did you get into a leadership role within the ride? I did. I, I was I was a trainer. I trained many of the young guys who came on to the Jungle Cruise trainer on Big Thunder Mountain, on the Columbia, on the Mark Twain. Of all the rides that I worked, and I was only limited to Adventureland, sure. Frontierland. My favorite was the Columbia sailing ship mm -hmm. by far. Yeah, I have such a romantic idea about those summers because it was it was only brought out yep. occasionally. Yep. And the guys who did it, I mean, we broke every SOP rule yeah. in the book. Back, back then, we had a great group of guys, and we, you know, we were told we were to go no higher than the bell tower <laughs> on the Columbia ship. And, yeah, that did. And as soon as we made the cross past the Bear Country Jamboree, we were all up in that rigging. We were up in the crow's yeah. nest. We were looking for – it was playtime. It yeah. was – and it was absolutely spectacular. Well, who doesn't want to be a pirate? Exactly. And, you know, to be playing in the rig. And everything we did was probably so dangerous we could have, like, died, you know? I mean, <laughs> not looking back at it. But it was the same sort of summer crew, and to get to play on the Columbia ship was sure. really wonderful. Yeah, that's that's time. the hard thing about becoming a lawyer is now you can look back and go, what what were we doing? <laughs> so now we know why management had problems with it's, us. It's so true. It's so <laughs> true. I mean, the really the major SOP violations were on the Jungle Cruise right? Again, because we were this bad boy frat at yeah. that time. Once we got onto the river and we were out all by ourselves with boat, even though boatloads of guests in the boats, yeah. we were. It was fun time. We used to have shootouts at the waterfall. Yeah. We used to have guys on hot August days jumping off their boats to mm -hmm. like pretend to knife wrestle in the middle of the river yeah. with boats backing up and us applauding them. You know, I, I, just, I would not want to be in that water <laughs> for anything. I know it's, gr it's gross. And of course, the lead would be on the dock. Like there's this huge eight minute gap where there's no boats coming in, and all of a sudden, seven or eight boats. Would come in and one or two skippers would be soaking wet and he it was George Park. He was a Vietnam vet back then who would return and he'd be looking at us like, What happened? And we just thought 
shrug our shoulders. But George was a, a returning Vietnam veteran who mm-hmm. also was getting reaccustomed to life post-Vietnam. And yeah. so I think in some ways we helped save his soul and he helped save ours. I think there's a movie there about, yeah. you know, that era. Because it really is interesting that so many of those worlds were coming together with it's with a magical place. It's very true. All these worlds, Vietnam vets coming back, the gay yeah. rights movement starting, women's lib starting, were all happening within the context of the well, park and like at the said, same and time. And we had Sue on the show, and you know, Sue was one of the first uh, female skips to be full-time. There was a group in the 70s who they tried out for a week or something that just it, didn't I pan. was there. I was there. Yeah. It became part of the Jungle Cruise movie. I don't know if you've seen the Jungle Cruise have, movie. We're still trying to get our hands on, oh, on, on I think I, I think I have a copy, but there are so many non SOP things on there, including me dancing on. I could probably get fired. Of course, the statute of limitations is long past on yes. lawsuits. But that part of the video is me dancing in the animation, jumping mm-hmm. on the back of a zebra, singing I, a I song. Have, I, have a, <laughs> I have a picture of me riding the rhino on the. There you go. You have, I mean, you have to do something on your yeah. ass, you know, on your, yeah. your days there. Um, what was the what was the tone when the the ladies finally? Uh, Join the the fraternity. What was the? I wasn't there when they actually came yeah, in. You know, I, I had already left. Sorry, I had already left. But I remember that at the time, the thought of women working Jungle Cruise was just not possible. Yeah. In this world where you know girls worked on Storybook, boys worked on Jungle. Well, and it, yeah. that perception that women aren't funny is such a strange yeah. balancing act because I think the issue is more that it's. Women have a, a more limited range of tones as far as their humor, so they don't sound negative or bitchy. Right. You know, and there's that there's that um, sarcastic, biting style right. that if they go into it, it comes off as being that aggressive, negative yeah. tone versus guys that can play a deadpan and then not have it. Be yeah, it, it's true. And back then, the dynamic was Jungle Cruise skippers and tour guides, because tour guides were only women. There were few yeah. male exceptions back then. Mike McCleary, Ron... Cook and Tom Shelley, I think, were the three male tour guides in the whole department that yeah. Sicily had. But back then, it was all women and the tour guides. And you men. know, Sicily just passed away. I did. Recently. I saw that. I saw that. She was a real, a real yeah. lady. But uh, uh, yeah, there was a dynamic that it was uh, this impression that the hot guys worked on the Jungle Cruise and the well, hot the chicks worked on yeah. the tour guides. Right. Well, it's the, it's the rebels and the girls in the plaid skirt. Right. It was like no, that's the a good dynamic. And and the rebels. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah Jungle. Really... I mean, Jungle has lost none of that. It's it's where all of the, oh, that's good to hear. It's where all the rebellious types. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, it, we, I was there in the era when the guns went away, because uh, there was you know a, a multi-year period where they took the guns out because there was a group called um, uh, you know people for the ethical treatment of animatronics <laughs> who had an issue with shooting fake guns and a fake and people a fake, and fake animals <laughs> with us being paid fake money. So you know that was that was that interesting period. We didn't even have guns right. for a span of things. So. Uh, we can thank the generations who had gunfights and the, yeah. the belts and things. Has like anybody that. talked about the banana ball that used you know, to happen back then? We haven't talked a lot. I was, I was yeah. actually going to because you're yeah. right in the middle yeah. of that, the thick of that. Why don't you give a quick little? Uh, that was the big party every year. It was the banana ball? It was put on by the Jungle Cruise guy where we just took over mm-hmm. a space, and it was a big drunken yep. brawl. There, there yeah. I, uh, last year was the first time that a bunch of photos surfaced of one of the years. Oh, funny! And it was you know what you would expect of. You know, it was not yeah. crazy out. It was and, not a, a great shining example of the all American <laughs> kids. It was all American degenerates. Yeah. yeah, but those were fun times. Yeah, yeah. there. Um, and the banana ball went even into the even into the late eighties. I mean, hmm. that was floating around. That that stayed for quite some time. 
based on people we've talked to. So right, yeah, I was um, very active when I was there, seventy-eight to eighty-four. Yeah, and it, I think that there's one of the other like common reoccurring themes that we've talked about is that there's a cycle of permittance where you know management is more permitting of the shenanigans and you know the playing with the script and jokes, and then you have a cycle where things you know get a little bit more tightened down and they want to be really you know. Uh, really strongly, and I and you know for a while now it's actually been in a pretty tight phase. Hmm. When I was there, uh, that that o two o three o four was, you know, a fantastic magical time where it was very hands off and we could really play with with the right. humor of it. Right. And I think everyone stayed in the spirit of the ride, and it wasn't right. like it, you know. Do you have jokes that were not in the I, script that you ironic, remember? Ironically, they... a lot of our controversial jokes back then are now the standard operating yeah. procedure of today. I, I still don't know yeah. how the cannibalism jokes stay in the script <laughs> decade after decade. Yeah, because uh, they're pretty. You know, yeah, they're, they're funny, but they're yeah. they're pretty strong cannibalism jokes. Yeah, I, I know. When I, uh, you know, I used to always ask whether we were allowed to guest spiel because I got to guest spiel for a while. We don't. They don't allow guest spieling yeah. anymore. But it was interesting to me to notice that some of the jokes that we told back then that were forbidden mm-hmm. have now just become SOP. Hard, yeah. And I'm sure that the forbidden jokes of today will become SOP. Well, and I think that's the nature of comedy, is I think that the things yeah. that are funny will be integrated and will stay. Right. Uh, well, uh, do you go down to the park? On, uh, I was just there a few weeks ago. I had a, a Disney virgin, somebody who had never been to a Disney theme park. Yeah. And so uh, a group of us, six of us, went down and did the whole Club 33 all day. And I still have not, after all the years. Oh, wow. I still it's, have it's, never been able to make that happen. It's a treat. I, yeah. I have an old, old friend who lives in Orange County who's a, one of the original members of Club 33. Well, and I guess this is a good point. Uh, we haven't, since we've been on a dead space with not putting out episodes for a little while, there's been some big changes. Uh, they closed the Court of Angels. Oh, and wow. they're going to make that a private entrance for the expansion of Club 33 into a little bit more of a, I guess, jazz club. Oh, nice. Uh, so I, did, they're I actually, didn't know that. But oh. the Court of Angels, and I have great, fantastic memories about that that space, and it's a real shame because it was always a nice, Yeah, kind quiet, of a respite away yeah, from the park. Yeah, all the noise and all yeah. the things that were happening. Yeah. Um, the other big thing of it was this year was the Jingle Cruise. It was the first year that they did an actual Christmas-themed uh, blessed by the you know the spirits of Disney management, because right. you know we all did Christmas jokes at that time of year. There were yeah. always like little things, but they actually sanctioned it. They had a script. Wow. They had um, uh, leopard skin uh, elf hats that they got to wear. <laughs> uh, and so it's nice seeing Jungle finally getting some treatment, and right. you know rather than just giving them uh, no leash. There's, there's a leash, but it's longer. I hope it gets a complete makeover at some point because yeah. I, I was on the Jungle Cruise this past this past month and some of the animation looks just a little worn. You can tell yeah. it's been there for a long time. Yeah, there's a few things. The hippos are hard, I know, because of the the sediment that builds up. Mm. Um, but yeah, any of the water animation can be is a little tricky. But yeah, there was uh, the last big refit with. Um, was mid aughts where they put in the piranhas, but before that it was ninety five with Indy. Wow. So 95 was the last big, where yeah. they built the boathouse, and they really... Uh, Bertha in the shower, and she needs a cleaning up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that, that just, yeah, just the, the difficulty of an outdoor arrangement with, you know... Yeah. Can you still things. can you still derail a boat easily? Back in the battle days, we knew how to intentionally derail yeah, boats. Yeah, they put governors on the engines. Ah, uh, and okay. I want to say that, if I remember my history, would have been mid-80s. Uh, mid to late 80s, they actually put a... Rest- uh, uh, oh, no, maybe it was 95. No, it had to be before. But yeah, they put a, um, a throttle regulator that the boat could not go faster than a certain speed. 
no matter how much you jammed it down and, and right. tried to put the gas on it. So because of that, that minimized the derail amounts because you couldn't build up the momentum to, to get the derail back waves. the hippo pole. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the, big, the big issue, the way that people would do it is they would, you know, run the engine on a straightaway, then cut the engine or throw it backwards, oh, and they, they'd you, crest you figured back. out our secret. They'd crest back <laughs> over the wave. That's exactly right. Um, That's and right. that was, you know, so, yeah. you know, I actually, I went the entire, the entire time uh, up until my last week of, that I was there for the five years. I, I didn't derail a boat my whole time. And then I derailed it by mis throwing a, a track switch and backstage. So it had to happen at some point. But, um, <laughs> That's funny. So do you have any 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 particular like when people um, meet you and there's that that moment you know where in casual discussion or you say something that that evokes your time at Disney and you mention that you were a Jungle Cruise skipper. Yes. Which do you think is cooler for them that you that you're a mayor? Or that you worked at the Jungle Cruise. Jungle Cruise Skipper. You know, we've, we've proved it that that is the best Jungle job. Cruise Skipper uh, by far. When people often say, how did you put yourself through college? I yep. say, oh, I worked at Disneyland shooting hippopotamus yep. 20 times a day. And, and it's, you can say any, almost any other job at Disney, and there's not the cachet right. that you get from being a Jungle Cruise Skipper. That's right. Yeah. And so. my straw hat, I think I still have it. Yeah. I know I shouldn't have it, but I think I still yeah. have my straw hat. Uh, we, all, we, we always say that everyone takes a little bit of something away from their experience <laughs> at Disneyland. Sometimes it's something tangible. Sometimes it's not. So everyone takes their own little piece of Disneyland with them. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Though some of the Jungle Cruise skippers and I, we've stayed in touch. You know, yeah. one's a district attorney in Orange County, Scott Simmons. You know, some of them now work at the studio. Dave Thompson, uh, Bud Justison is now doing aerospace in uh, in Denver, Colorado. So we've all stayed in touch and just gone on to become other things in life. But I think we all still remember really fondly those formative years out on yeah. the Jungle Cruise. Yeah. And um, so let's. I mean, just a brief segue because I want to kind of. You know, uh, obviously you've made a little something of yourself, um, and you have very strong and passionate uh, belief in this part of the city, which is just an amazing part of the tapestry that makes L.A. Um, what moved you toward public service? What was it that, that kind of instigated your move in that direction? A lot of the guys that I worked with in the early days of the 1980s on the Jungle Cruise died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And so the epidemic also touched our Disney employees. It's interesting, like you say, that the, the park was a microcosm of everything that was going on in yeah. the world. And the guys that, that I lost that i become friends with, you know, I ended up becoming an attorney and an HIV and AIDS attorney in the early days uh, of the epidemic and then becoming a gay rights lawyer and then becoming the mayor of West Hollywood. Yeah. But it was all formed out of my, my anger, not, not so much at the time of the anger with management because, you know, that's just life, poor management. It was the anger of losing such young people to a virus and the plague that, that nobody seemed to care about except, right. except those of us involved. So, so there was your strong personal direction that you were, were moving toward, and then that led toward the, the, the looking toward ways that you could affect right. change. With Yeah, your... I ended up going into law school in 1984. Mm -hmm. And so I was, a, I was a brand new student in law school. I was just starting out a law career. The epidemic hit. And even though I left the park in 84, you know, I still stayed in touch with people that were there. And so uh, a lot of the next steps really uh, were predicated on the time that I spent mm -hmm. there on the Bertha Bell or whatever the name of my ship was, Amazon Bell, yep. and, and the time that I spent uh, at Disneyland and the friendships that I made. Yeah. So besides the, I mean, there's obviously a, um, a plethora of skills, you know, public speaking and 
being quick on your feet, being able to joke and pun, I mean, it definitely translates over. What was the other, the other skill sets? Uh, and a, a Disney University is a huge one uh, because you get to meet people of, of every shape, size, color, and and work with you know anyone on the drop of a hat. But was were there other parts of your tool bag that you've taken into public service that specifically started at that time? Yes, believing that I could do things to make the world different. Yeah. You know, I think when, when I was start, showed up at Disneyland, I showed up in, a, like you described it, a very militaristic and cultural environment there. Mm-hmm. And we tried to present logic and facts, and that ended up going nowhere. So instead, we became the rabble-rousers, and we became the people fighting for change. Yeah. And then seeing change take place, knowing that if I just stepped in and did something, that it could actually move the ball down the field. Yeah. It was a very important part of the tool bag. Very cool. Um, any other... Uh, Five-ish minutes or so, five ten minutes. Um, are there any other stories from your time there that were, like, things you want preserved? Since, I mean, kind of what we're doing is presenting right. an oral history that in 10 or 20 years people can go back and say, these are things that happened. I mean, is there any any specific events or uh, celebrities you got to meet? or You know, I got to meet a lot of celebrities on the Jungle Cruise, but I have to tell you, my favorite moments were either in the wheelhouse of the Mark Twain or up in the rigging of the Columbia, just to kind of be alone. Yeah. And there was one moment, I don't know if you recorded the time that a tornado touched down and hit no, Disneyland. No, not at all. That was in the early 80s. And one day, a, an actual mini tornado touched down. It derailed a lot of the Skyway vehicles wow. off of their cable. It pulled up all these umbrellas in Tomorrowland and dumped all these umbrellas into the submarine lagoon. <laughs> I mean, a, a tornado touched down. I was on the Columbia that oh. day. And the Columbia was not operating, but Fowler's Harbor was being rehabilitated. So they had to have the Columbia just kind of moving around yeah. while you know the Mark Twain was traveling. I had no guest on it. And we had the sails out. Oh. <laughs> and very, very day, the sails, the rigging, you know, sails were out. Yeah. And that tornado hit. And the wind picked the Colum- I felt the Columbia pick up out of the and water. lurch and move faster than I had ever experienced the Columbia moving. And back oh then, goodness. we had radio communication, and I was River 3. River 3, I called River 2, River 1. Mm-hmm. Move everybody out of the way, because I could not. Columbia was in full reverse, and it was not stopping. Yeah. And it was moving faster than it should have. And I remember that day, sort of just watching the Columbia move, and everybody having to get out of the way. Yeah. Mark Twain keel boats canoes because there was no stopping it, no stopping uh, it. Yeah. When uh, when the news came, when you heard the news about the fatality that they had with the Columbia, yeah. Um, you know, everyone I've talked to who's part of that history, all just took a moment because everyone, you know, uh, everyone who's been on that ride just took a moment and realized yeah. the, the the power that that boat had. It does. They're both big boats. Too. I yeah. once got my foot stuck between the Mark Twain and the dock. Yeah. And it split my shoe in half, and I had to go to the ER. I almost lost a foot. Huh. I mean, those big boats are very, very big, potentially and dangerous. Yeah, I, I know a jungle. You know, they they put in some new systems to hold the boats in, but you know the the number of times where I've grabbed people's legs or things, you know, to keep them dunking from, in the river. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're getting their leg caught between the boat yes. and the dock, oh, that's right. Through so now they have a little bit different system, and it's it's you know I think they're still. Yeah, figuring it out. I think that's always tragic when something like that happens. I mean, big, big Thunder Mountain. When that happened, that I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, because during the opening days of Big Thunder, when we would find parts of trains all over the track, we knew that those vehicles were not designed for that such a narrow track. Yeah, Yeah. the um, 
I mean, but statistically, Disney has done such a fantastic job of keeping its guests safe. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, they, they, I, I, one of the great examples, I was driving to Vegas and you drive by that roller coaster. Right. Uh, and I hope this doesn't fall into the library. Yeah. Category, but yeah. I look at that roller coaster and right. I say to myself, I've worked at Disney. I know what they do right. to keep rides safe. But it's the pixie dust phenomenon. It's the pixie dust phenomenon. Nothing bad can happen yeah. to you at Disneyland. Well, and they have to keep that perception, you know. Right. And that, unfortunately, they get the lawsuits. They get a lot of that. But they have a, an amazing track record of being able to say, "We're, you know, we did this, this, and this." The Roger Rabbit incident with the parent who who right. passed the kid across their own lap, and then you know the child, of course, yeah. fell out of the, uh, the 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 vehicle and fell underneath right. it. And I, I just recently that child had passed away and yeah i mean but that whole thing there's almost a phenomenon where people lose intelligence when they walk through the gates because of that pixie dust phenomenon right. like nothing and bad and they happen. think nothing bad can happen and they lose that common sense and they just do yeah. dumb things same thing happens with employees too you yeah. walk in just not thinking nothing bad can happen right. here racism homophobia inequities they don't happen here yeah they do that's life yeah. that's life and, and i think that it has um i i, I have mentioned this Repeatedly, I think every high school student, unless they have a clear focus of what they want to do with college, if they're even vague or fuzzy, should take a year off or take that summer off and go work at Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Because the skills that they get of, you know, being in an environment with people whose religious background or sexual preferences or whatever it is is different than their own, it creates this amazing brain opening that they, you know, that they do. And I credit that they've had, you know... Tens of thousands of people, you know, have gone through that process yes. as employees. We're going to do and parade it made the control. world better. Oh, yeah. Parade control. I don't know if they even call it parade control anymore. Uh, yeah, guest control parade. It's called the illusion of control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny. The I was talking, I was in Orlando uh, before I was doing the podcast. I think I was a cast member here. And uh, I was talking to one of their parade people. And I was like, oh, my God, your guys' parade routes are just, and they have a lot more space. Right. And it's amazing how do you, and this, well, we have this amazing system. We have this blue masking tape that when we're ready for a parade, we'll put that tape on the ground and people will line up behind it because it's a magical line at Disneyland <laughs> and a blue piece of tape will motivate people in ways that like a stanchion wouldn't hurt right, or, or things like that. Orange cone. Exactly. And it's just because they put a blue piece of tape on the ground, people will stand behind it because... There's that perception of what they should be doing. And then you have people who will, you know, move lines or whatever, guests will come through just to prove that they did something a little bit bad. Or yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So out, outside of just still the big boats or when you go down, you have to take a trip and uh, go around the river? I do. And I think very fondly of the time I spent there and the people that I met and how it did shape me into becoming who I am. And I think if nothing else, because I... You know, I left high school feeling completely uh, outside of my skin, awkward, uncomfortable with myself. And I found this group of young people who weren't able to go to the football rallies on Friday nights, who weren't able to attend the homecoming dance because we were working at the park. And I developed a brand new family that, you know, ended up sort of helping me create me and me creating them in the process. Well, and I, mean, I think it's pretty obvious that you, you've continued to pass that down and the, pay it forward in, in that regard because... Um, you know, I think that there's a tone in West Hollywood that shapes a lot of what happens around it. Um, yes. That it that it is. Um, I, I think unfairly made. I think that there are people who may deride it because of the content, because okay. of their personal beliefs. But if you look at 
um, the strength of coming forward and standing by your beliefs in the face of adversity uh, is is precisely you know what we applaud in our heroes, right? And this is an area that's full of heroes and full of people it's who in every Disney movie there's a, a, a downcast, an outcast. God help the outcast. Yep. Somebody who feels different that overcomes those obstacles. Have you seen Frozen? Not yet. Um, you should. There's a really interesting dialogue that um, one of the characters within there, the one played by Adina Menzel that it may be Disney's first gay character. Oh. Because she's uh, ostracized by her parents. So there's a connection to that to that feeling because she's ostracized by her parents for having a magical power and basically shut up in a castle, told not to address her feelings, not to feel anything, not to right. be in touch with all that. Wow. And then the whole coming out scene of her being empowered to, to have those abilities is a really interesting Well, I think parallel. just about every villain is a, a gay or lesbian, whether it's Ursula yeah. or Captain uh, Hook the, or uh, Jafar. Uh, I, think, I think the biggest one is, is uh, in Hunchback. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because definitely. He, yeah, that's very repressed yeah, feelings very about, repressed, you know, yeah. the religious feelings about hellfire yeah. for looking at a woman's it's body. So true. And, yeah, It's so true. Well, I think that the company, I don't think that they do it with a malice as far as, you know, creating characters. But I, I was actually a little offended with, uh, with Wreck-It Ralph, with the, there was a, the King character in there used some, some phraseology, which was kind of old school negative, you know, terms for gay people. And I was kind of like, wow, how the heck did that get through? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so they still do, I think, unfortunately, do some caricatures that are a little right. stereotypical. Some of it's dated. Yeah. Some of it's dated. You, I, think I mean, look at the Br- rabbit, Br- fox. Yeah. Br- you can't even see that anymore because the Song of the South is so... Yeah. And it's, I think it's a shame. I think, I think we've gotten past the point uh, chronologically where we can see that movie through a lens now right. and be okay with it. Right. Um, and I think it's a shame that the company's not just stepping out and saying this is what this was at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that with the, the Saving Mr. Banks movie, they're, they're trying to do such a PR push and a spin on who Walt Disney was culturally and kind of sweeping some things under the carpet about the way that he, he saw some things. I, I'm the, have you seen that one either? Not yet. Yeah. That, that was it. That was a tough one for me because, um, Travers, the woman who wrote Mary Poppins went to her grave uh, and in her will said, uh, these characters will never be made into a movie again. She was so offended mm. and yet the movie glamorizes that she loved the movie at the end of it, and she didn't. She went went to her grave hating the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, but Disney has put a little spin on this, so it's mm. a little... But uh, go watch Frozen. I think you will be... Okay. It's, I think it's I think it's the first progressive Disney movie. Cool. Um, because they really... It isn't a defenseless female. It isn't a guy coming to save the day. Right. You know, they didn't even just flip that. They have just strong characters who act strongly, which I think is a beautiful... That's great. Well, like Mulan. Yeah, Mulan. Strong female yeah. character. A lot of cross-dressing in that movie. <laughs> That's true. And but, funny jokes. And funny jokes. About and cross-dressing. Eddie, and Eddie Murphy when he was still good. So, yeah. <laughs> and enjoying it. So I think that's a good time. Um, anything, if you want to take a second, does any of uh, the people you, you used to work with that you want to uh, give personal, you know, hellos or shout-outs, a terrible phrase for it, but if, I mean, if there's anything, right. any other uh, stories or messages or, or anything, this is a perfect time to wrap it up and... You know, I, I guess I would just express thanks to those the women and men who were in Adventureland, Frontierland from 78 to 84 while I was there. They were an extraordinary group of people because we felt very much 
oppressed by a system that kept us contained yep. in really unhealthy working conditions. I mean, being stuck on the jungle, it, it's fun now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fun when you were there every day of the week for years. Yeah, four years. Oh, I, I was there. Or if you were women loading up lead pellets into rifles where you actually left with lead in your nostrils and mm-hmm. mouth, you know, and that was yeah. your work day, that or Jose at the Tiki yeah. Room. And notwithstanding all that, we still managed to find camaraderie and humor and to deal with that and to laugh about it and stay in touch to this day. Yeah. And it... it it set the stage for all the magic that comes afterwards, right. built upon the history that came before. And, you know, it is uh, important that every generation keeps that, that transformation going. Right. Uh, everyone steps into the shoes that uh, the footsteps is what we used to say yeah. during training. I imagine the LGBT employees that work there now, they would probably not recognize the Disney Park oh, of no. the late 70s. Yeah, no, not at all. It was a very different place. Yeah. So, well, um Thank you so much for Thank taking you. the time. I, I always appreciate you taking some time out of the busy schedule. And uh, uh, to everyone out there on the podcast side, we've got more episodes coming. Um, uh, we did, like I said, take about three months off because, you know, getting married eh, it was kind of important. Um, so we lost a little momentum as far as getting um, interviews set up and skips. I have two more that are hard set right now uh, that we'll be doing in the next uh, month or so. So just keep an eye out. Uh, pass it along to your friends. That's the best way to uh, keep the podcast rolling. Thanks, everybody, and come to to all of our listeners out there.